Well, good evening. It is a delight, as always, to be with you. I'm excited to share with you God's Word. <clears throat> if you'll open your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, our text this evening will be verses 5 through 12, <clears throat> but I'm going to begin reading in verse 1. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, <clears throat> beginning in verse 1. Uh, please stand for the reading of God's word. <clears throat> this is God's holy, inerrant, and infallible word. You would do well to give it your full attention. <clears throat> now, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word, or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction." who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat at the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Now verse 5. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception. For those who are perishing, because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore God sends them a strong delusion, so that they may believe what is false, in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. As far as the reading, God's holy word, you may be seated. Let us ask the Lord's blessing once again upon His Word. Our most holy God, we thank You for the truths that You have given to us in Your Word. We thank You because we know that Your glory is high above the heavens, but yet You have condescended to speak to us, to reveal Yourself to us, that we might know You and might know our duty towards You. We pray, Lord, that You would plant Your Word deeply in us and that from it might come forth righteousness. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I told you so. Four little words 
that many times we hate to hear. And because we hate to hear it, people claim to hate to say it. The patronizing tone of, I hate to say it, but I told you so, will almost drive you bananas, won't it? Of course, no one's really ever said those words to me before. I'm not not, uh, sure what it quite feels like. As my wife (laughs) tells me otherwise. But let me ask you, why do we hate to hear those words? I told you so. Is it because we hate to be wrong? Is it because we hate when other people are right? Is it because we don't like to be reminded of our failures? I think we could answer yes to some degree on all of these questions. But I think that the ultimate reason that we hate those four little words is because of the way that they are often used by the person speaking them. When someone uses this phrase, it usually or often comes with an agenda. The agenda to kick someone when they are down. The agenda to rub it in someone's face. Those four little words are most often used with arrogance and rudeness, and that is why we don't like to hear them. Let me ask you, how should we take those words when God uses them, when God speaks them to us? Does God have a kick-you-when-you're-down agenda? Is God's word to us ever arrogantly rude? Of course not. Heaven forbid. God is not subject to sin. Rather, God's word repeatedly tells us what man is to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man. The repeatable pattern that we find in the scriptures has somewhat of an I told you so demeanor. But not, listen closely, not in a pedantic or a negative way. It serves the purpose of reminding us of the things that our sinful flesh so easily want to forget. Well, in our text this morning, Paul, writing the very words of God, gives the Thessalonians a bit of an I told you so. At this portion of the letter, he has been dealing with a false teaching that had claimed that the day of the Lord had already come. To refute the claims of this false doctrine, he told them that the apostasy and the man of lawlessness will be revealed first. And then he says, Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? Paul, in essence, is saying, You should not fall prey to such false claims. The apostasy and lawless one must come first. Have I not already told you so? Nevertheless, Paul is quick to remind them of the doctrines that he has already taught them. He tells them again. And the thesis of the sermon this morning is this. 
God gives us His Word as a continual reminder of what we need to know. And therefore of how we are to live. You see, God's Word restrains the lawless one. And without its reverberating, I told you so, we would deceive ourselves and fail to love the truth and so be saved. As we progress through the rest of this passage, we're going to do so in three different sections. The first section will be the I told you so's of Scripture renew our minds. The I told you so's of Scripture renew our minds. Second section, the I told you so's of Scripture restrain the lawless one. And finally, the I told you so of the Lord will put to death the lawless one and his followers. I told you so of the Lord will put to death the lawless one and his followers. Now in the previous passage, which I started off reading, specifically looking at verse 2 of 2 Thessalonians 2, the Thessalonians were told not to be shaken by claims that Christ had already, occur- had already occurred, had already come. Because the apostasy and the final appearance of the lawless one had not yet occurred. In verse 5, Paul tells them another reason that they should not be shaken by these false claims. Namely, that he had already told them about such things. He writes, Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? This means that what... He had written them in verses 3 through 4 was simply a reminder of what he had already told them. What he had already said to them in person. And he is worried that their lack of recalling his teachings is making them vulnerable to false doctrine. Paul is indicating to them that they must continually recall the things that he has taught them. You see, as humans, if we don't continually recall particular information, it becomes very, very easy for us to forget. That is the way our minds work. It's a result of man's fall into sin. Sometimes theologians refer to this as one of the noetic effects of sin. Noetic from the Greek word gnosis, which means knowledge. And so how sin affects our knowledge. You see, our minds are darkened by sin and they lead us to futility apart from God's word in our lives. Romans chapter 1, verses 21 through 22 says, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became what? Futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. On account of this, Paul says that God gave them over to three different things. Verse 24, he gave them over to the lust of their hearts. Verse 26, he gave them up to dishonorable passions. And more importantly for our point here, he says he gave them up to a 
debased mind. Verse 28, Romans 1, 28. So what is the remedy to this debased mind? To what he speaks of in Romans chapter 1? Well, in the 12th chapter, verse 2 of Romans, Paul says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. R.C. Sproul says, if we want a transformed life, the most important thing to do is to get a new mind. The beginning of the Christian life, he says, is rooted in repentance. The Greek word for repentance is metanoia, which means a change of mind. And the Holy Spirit awakened us to our absolute need for a Savior and we rushed to the cross. Our minds and the direction of our lives were changed. End quote. The Spirit working through the Word at our conversion, conversion is what renews our once debased minds. But then the rest of chapter 12 verse 2 goes on to say, your minds are to be renewed that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. If we want to know the will of God, we do not just repent and believe and then that's it. We've got it all figured out. A renewed mind will think God's thoughts after him. And this comes by feasting ourselves in the word of God. This is how our minds are continually renewed. This is Paul's point in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. In our passage this evening. He is telling the church at Thessalonica that they must continually recall God's word that He has given to them, both by word and mouth. By His letter. If we do not continually feed on God's word, then we are prone to forget. And in forgetting, being deceived. Have any one of you ever learned a new language? How did you learn to remember your vocab words? Or just think when you're in grade school and you're learning your new spelling words. How did you remember how to spell those words? In history, how did you learn your dates and your people You may have used word associations or mnemonics to help you remember, but ultimately you had to review them over and over again. And the reason that you had to do that was because your minds have been affected by sin. And we are prone to forget. Now, if this is true of learning a language or learning our grade school subjects, how much more true is it of learning the very Word of God, of learning God's revealed will? We are prone to forget God's Word of instruction to us. 
Therefore, we need to be told it over and over again. That is why God's Word itself is repetitive. It has the same themes occurring over and over again. It is telling us the Gospel over and over again. It may do it from different perspectives, from different angles, but it is the same themes being reinforced over and over again. And this is why God gives us the reverberating I told you so's all throughout the Bible. And it's also why every sermon should in some way present the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. We need to hear the gospel over and over again or else we will lose sight of it and quickly err in doctrine or practice. You see, to truly know the gospel is to live. Therefore, we must repeatedly go back to God's repetitive word. Some in Thessalonica were failing to recall God's word that Paul had taught them, and it was upsetting their faith. Doctrine is important. When our doctrine isn't right, our practice isn't right. So go back to the I told you so's of Scripture over and over again. They are given for our good. The good Lord has given us 52 wonderful days out of the year to hear God's Word, His Gospel proclaimed. And alongside of this, we need to feed on it every day in our own private studies and family devotions. Or we will be prone to err in doctrine and or in life. Now in our next section, Paul informs us that the lawless one is being restrained until it is his time to be revealed. In verses 6 through 7, Paul writes, And you know what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And what is fascinating is that Paul speaks of the lawless one's restraint as an impersonal force in verse 6. He says, you know what is restraining him now. There it is an impersonal what that is restraining the lawless one. The word there in the Greek is used in the neuter. What is restraining him? But then in verse 7, it is a personal force. That is restraining the lawless one. It's not a what, but a he that restrains the lawless one. The word is the same, but now used in the masculine form, not in the neuter. And so it is an impersonal force, a thing, a what, verse 6, and then it is a he, a very personal force. And so we ask, well, then which is it? Is it an impersonal force or is it a personal force that is restraining 
the lawless one. Well, lots of people suggest different things, but I think the answer is both. There is a what and there is a who. Paul would not speak of a person as a what, nor would he speak of a thing as a he. Therefore, it must be both. There must be both forces in place. Now, when we have a difficult spot in Scripture, what do we do? How do we handle such difficulties? Well, we let Scripture interpret Scripture, don't we? So turn with me, if you have your Bibles open, to Revelation chapter 20, verse, beginning in verse 1. Now, obviously, this wasn't a difficulty, or at least not as much of a difficulty to the Thessalonians as it might be to us today. I think Paul had personally instructed them, well, I don't think he did personally instruct them on this when he was with them, which is probably why he didn't go into detail on what and who is restraining the man of lawlessness here. But I think that Revelation chapter 20 can help answer that question for us. Revelation chapter 20, verse 1. John writes, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit, and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit, and shut it and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer, until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Now, in this vision, John sees an angel... And this angel binds Satan. But I ask you, what is Satan specifically bound from? Is he bound from all evil activity? As if he can't do anything? No, this text tells us specifically that he is bound from no longer deceiving the nations until the time of his binding is over. He's bound from no longer deceiving the nations. And I believe, I know there are different views on this, but if you'll let me, I submit to you that this time period is a reference to our present age. During the Old Testament, you see, it was primarily Israel who knew God. They had God's word. The nations did not know God. They were deceived by Satan. But Jesus came and what did he do? He knocked down the dividing wall between the Jews and the Gentile nations. And throughout the New Testament age, the gospel is going forth into all the nations. Hence, Satan is bound from deceiving the nations. But then at the end of this age, he will be released and will be enabled to deceive once again. So I believe that this passage gives us the clues to answering the question of the what and who that is restraining the lawless one. The who is the angel that sees 
that John sees in verse 1. He is the one who binds or restrains the deceptive work of Satan. But then what is the what that restrains the lawless one? Well, the what is the gospel itself that is going forth into the world, that is going into all the nations. Satan is unable to fully deceive the nations because the force of the gospel is penetrating into every nation around the world. I think this also corresponds very well with what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 24, verse, beginning in verse 11. Matthew writes, And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to the nations. And then the end will come. You see, it is this I told you so book that we have, this gospel book, which repetitively proclaims the gospel of the kingdom that restrains the lawless one until his time is revealed and God allows him to be turned loose at the end of this age. Ultimately, we know that it is God who restrains the man of lawlessness, but He does so through the angel of Revelation chapter 20 and through the power of the gospel that is going forth into all of the nations. But beloved, Paul says in verse 7 that lawlessness is already at work even now. In fact, that's what Matthew 24 that we just read told us, wasn't it? Lawlessness will be increased. To be increased means it's already present in some form and it will grow and be heightened at the end. Paul tells us it's at work even now. And so Paul is letting the Thessalonians and us know that we cannot let our guards down lest we fall prey to the already present work of lawlessness. This reinforces the point that Paul has already made. We need to constantly recall God's instruction to us in His Word. The great apostasy has not happened yet, but there have been many who have already apostatized throughout church history. We see people apostatizing even today. This very fact is why your pastor or pastors continually remind you of the gospel every Lord's Day. We as pastors do not know the hearts of men. We do not know who God's elect are infallibly. Therefore, we remind you of the gospel each Lord's Day with the hopes that none of you will fall away and be deceived by the lawlessness that is already at work. You see, there is power in the I told you so's of Scripture. 
We need God's word just as our bodies need food. In our final section, Paul assures us that when the man of lawlessness is finally revealed, that Jesus will destroy him and will condemn all those who are deceived and who follow him. Specifically, it says that the Lord Jesus will kill him with the breath of his mouth. Now this word for breath in Greek is pneuma, 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 which can be translated also as spirit, by the spirit of his mouth, by the breath or by the wind of his mouth. And what is intriguing is that this concept of God's breath being a destructive power, being a cre- both a creative and a destructive power, is repeated throughout all of Scripture. Now, what have we been focusing on in the first two sections? We've been saying that God's Word that comes forth from His mouth is a creative power for the believer, for the one who hears it. But now we see it as a destructive work for the lawless one and those who follow him. Jesus will kill him with the breath of his mouth, with the spirit of his mouth. We see this theme, this pattern all throughout Scripture. For example, in Genesis chapter 1, after God creates the heavens... In the earth, His Spirit was hovering over the waters of creation. His breath, His wind, His Spirit was hovering over the waters of creation. And these waters stood as disorder. A disordered creation in the presence of God. The creation was formless and void. But for six straight days, God breathed out His creative word and spoke into being an ordered realm. Specifically on day two, we find that God separated those waters so that the visible heavens divided the upper waters from the lower waters. And He also separated the waters on earth, the lower waters, so that the dry land would appear. These waters that brought about disorder in creation or were explanatory of the disorder of creation were no challenge to the sovereign creator of heaven and earth. He spoke and they were contained. At the flood, just a few chapters later, God opened the floodgates of heaven and the waters above the heavens and the waters below were no longer separated. When Noah and his family had remained in the ark for some time, Genesis chapter 8 verse 1 says that God made a wind. God made His breath, Spirit, blow over the earth and the waters subsided. God caused His breath or Spirit to blow over the earth and the waters divided, bringing forth dry land again. 
Moses indicates to us as we move forward in redemptive history. He tells us in Exodus 15 that the waters were again an obstacle, this time set before his people at the Red Sea. In verse 8 he writes, At the blast of your nostrils the waters piled up, the floods stood up in a heap, the deeps congealed the heart of the sea. And then in verse 10, You blew with your wind, your breath, your spirit, the sea covered them. They, that is the Egyptians, sank like lead in the mighty waters. You see, this theme is being continued throughout Scripture. David continues with it himself in Psalm chapter 18. In in that psalm, he portrays his enemies as hostile waters. That's the analogy he's using, the imagery he's giving. His enemies are like these hostile waters drowning him, tossing him to and fro. But when he describes his rescue by the Lord, he writes this, Then the channels of the sea were seen, and foundations of the world were laid bare at your rebuke, O Lord, at the blast of the breath of your nostrils. This destructive breath is now described as a rebuke from the Lord. He rebukes the enemy waters that have engulfed his servant David. Isaiah chapter 50 verse 2 is very thematically similar to Psalm 18. Isaiah writes, Behold, by my... Listen... Rebuke, I dry up the sea, I make the rivers desert. Again, the waters are dealt with by a rebuke of the Lord. Well, as this theme continues to grow in Scripture, let me ask you, where do the beasts in Daniel's vision arise from? They rise from the waters, from the sea. Chapter 7, verse 2, we read, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts came up out of the sea, out of the waters. Now, I want us to fast forward to the end. The book of Revelation. Revelation 13, when John describes the final Antichrist figure, or at least the institution that the Antichrist figure rules over, here's what he says. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea. In essence, John is seeing the kingdom of the Antichrist the very man of lawlessness that our passage in 2 Thessalonians 2 speaks of. What does our passage say? It says that Jesus will kill him with the breath of his mouth by way of a simple 
but most powerful rebuke, he will bring them to nothing. Just as God spoke and the hostile waters of old were contained. In fact, and think about this one, just as Jesus himself rebuked the winds and the waves and they ceased, they were no more. As he and his disciples sat in the boat, so too Jesus will rebuke the man of lawlessness who rises from the sea and our Lord will bring him to nothing. You see, the words of Scripture have repeatedly warned Satan This isn't I told you so of a different sort. And he has the message. And he will ultimately get the message when Jesus brings forth his I told you so rebuke against him at his return. And I believe wholeheartedly that Paul is giving us wonderful words of comfort in this chapter. He is telling us that things will get worse at the end, but there is no need to fear because Jesus will kill the man responsible for it. We are His. And he reigns over his church and protects his people. Now he goes on to note that the man of lawlessness by the power of Satan will deceive many by false signs and wonders and by wicked deception. Very concerning. He says that they will perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. And therefore, he says, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Did you notice that? What did Revelation 20 tell us? It says that he was bound from no longer deceiving the nations, but will be released at the end for a time. That is precisely what our passage is telling us. When the man of lawlessness comes, many will once again be deceived by Satan, and God will send them a strong delusion so that they will believe what is false. And deception will occur. In a heightened manner. And this is the very act of God that we saw earlier in Romans chapter 1. Whereby He turns unrepentant sinners over to themselves. That's what He's doing. That's what He will do at the end. The sad reality here is that those being described in verses 10 through through 12 are those even within the church. 
They are professing believers, yet they will fall away because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God will send them a strong delusion. They will believe what is false and be condemned on the last day. You know, Isaiah foresaw that day, and he speaks of it like this in chapter 11, verse 4. He that is God shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Beloved, we avoid that death by loving the truth. God's I told you so word is truth. And that word tells us that God the Son took on flesh as our Messiah and He lived a perfect life on behalf of His people. He died on Calvary taking away their sins and will someday return to bring them into a new heavens and a new earth to dwell with Him forever. In Revelation chapter 20, let me repeat, in Revelation chapter 21, when John sees a vision of the return of Christ, he writes, Then I saw a new heavens and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and listen, the sea was no more. It is the I told you so's of Scripture that will kill the man of lawlessness and his wicked followers. But it is the same I told you so's that will save the many. These are the truths that we must love, God's gospel. These are the truths that we must continue to recall. They have the power to give us new life and salvation. They have the power to renew your minds and to prevent you from falling away. And so I plead with you to listen carefully and listen often to the Lord's I told you so. Amen. Let us pray. Our great Heavenly Father, we thank you for the salvation that we have nowhere else but in the gospel of your Son. And Father, though we are not promised to have all difficulty removed in this life, we know that we have comfort because you hold us in your hand. Because your breath has given us new life. And though the outer man is passing away, we know that the inner man is being renewed day by day. Though this world is passing away, 
yet we will live on. May we have comfort in these truths and live boldly for the sake of the gospel of the kingdom. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand as the Lord gives you His blessing. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. You are dismissed. And uh, please stick around for some fellowship.